Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that is here to give you the scoop on coups. The scoop on coops? The scoop, the scoops on coups. It looks really good on the dog. But Thank you. I just... It didn't. It didn't quite hit how I wanted it to. So I appreciate you acknowledging that. It could have been better if you know. I don't know. Thank well, you. Well, English is a weird language. English, yeah, is could also language. be the scoo on coup if we want to go that the direction. The scoo on coup, exactly. So today we have Laura, Bianca, Helen, and Julia. And today, you guessed it, we're talking about that little attempted coup on the Capitol building last week. We will also be talking about the history of coups that the U.S. has carried out throughout the world. Also, um, just an FYI, there is a second attempted coup planned for January 17th by white, nation- by white nationalists and insurrectionists. White wing, right wing militants plan to lay white wing, white wing. <laughs> yeah, they're also white wing. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Freudian um, slip. <laughs> exactly. Right wing militants plan to lay siege to every cap- state capital in the nation on January 17th and are calling it an armed march. So it feels funny to call what is happening a coup, right? A uh, friend of the pod, Olivia Cappy Smith in Portland, tweeted, just because they're not very good at it doesn't mean it's not an attempted coup, lol. And I agree. Um, some people are arguing that we should use the term self-coup because it was incited by the head of state to undermine democracy, whereas a coup would be more about overfl- overthrowing the existing power. Um, but either way, this is the word that we're using. I do like and this came up in some tweet and not to like julia would know more about this than i would but there's like an actual word for this in spanish autogolpe like a a self-coup is like got its own word which is kind of cool that's irrelevant i just wanted to throw that in there um (laughs) moving right along uh we um talked uh a few episodes ago during our discussion after the election about voter suppression of um, we talked about the coup in Wilmington, North Carolina in um, 1898. Uh, I think it's worth going back to that and like giving it a listen. Um, This is not like the only example of um, reconstruction era. Well, sorry, that wasn't reconstruction. It was redeemer era. So post reconstruction era, um, violence and attempted coups and coups that happened. Um, but just to suffice it to say that like, this is not the first time that, um, an armed group of white Americans has attempted to subvert democracy. Um, in fact, you could argue that's like a very American thing. So yeah, like just a little season of the bee self plug, um, auto plug in Spanish, um, Go back and listen to that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, now we're going to talk about what kind of happened leading up to this insight, like what incited this event, what was going on leading up to this event. Yeah, well, I feel like there were some small, maybe not so small signs that this is going to happen, like even prior to the election, like not to say that this, like the magnitude or like the scale of what happened could have been predicted, But I think there have been things that, like, the president has been saying and his enablers have been allowing him to do that, like, basically led up to what happened last Wednesday. Um, I mean, even before the election happened, Trump was saying that he wouldn't necessarily accept the results of the election if he didn't win. And the day after the election, he was saying that, like, there had been widespread election fraud and was calling for recounts and revotes. And for like a long period of time before election day, he was uh, disseminating a lot of misinformation about how vote by mail would have worked. I think we covered this a little bit in our um, history of elections episode as well. Um, And because he was given such a huge platform to do so on social media, primarily on Twitter, a lot of that misinformation was able to get out to his supporters and followers. um, And that basically like created like this 
I don't even want to call it a movement. Like this, like, uh, incited, like it incited this violence, basically. I think one thing that kind of stands out in my mind was when he was like giving the speech and he told the Proud Boys to quote unquote stand back and stand by. And I like, I don't remember yes. when that happened, yeah. but I was like, holy shit. Like he yeah. is like directly not even enabling violence to happen, but like actually encouraging Encouraging, it. yeah. Yeah, so like all of this is to say that I think what happened last Wednesday was definitely like, it wasn't like random, obviously. It was like clearly very planned and encouraged by elected officials. They literally yeah. had gear, like like merchandise, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, like pre-printed. <laughs> yeah, I also just wanted to talk about because I feel like I've seen like people on Twitter and like pundits and stuff saying that this was not planned and even like... Um, I think the the current DC police chief claimed that they had no warning that this was going to happen. And that's part of why the response was so limited or like minimal seeming. But this definitely has been like there were murmurs of this and like journalists and activists who have been paying attention to like alt-right message boards and stuff have been trying to tell people that something like this was going to happen on January 6th for weeks. Um, I think like I saw this one graphic on Twitter that was floating around, but basically there were just a lot of different types of graphics that were telling people come to DC on the 6th, like there's going to be some sort of event. I think like the exact event wasn't necessarily planned in the exact way that it happened, but definitely the idea of like all of these alt-right people come meet in DC, shit's going to go down, bring weapons, like that was out there. Um, And from the reporting that I've seen, it does seem like there were a lot of sort of different competing plans. Like, I don't want to make this seem too like, oh, they're so coordinated. Like, we obviously saw that it was not successful, but there was also some level of coordination there. Um, And just like on the note of the police claiming that they had no idea what was going on, I saw this tweet from this writer, Grace Spellman. Um, So she tweeted about how she literally sent an email to the Capitol Police about like some of the information that she'd seen on these message boards, basically saying like, yes, these threats sometimes don't amount to anything, but this is going to be a really significant day because people are going to realize this is like their last chance to keep Trump in office by some illegal means. Um, And I don't know. So just like, the idea that the police didn't have any idea what was going on, like either that's completely untrue or it just speaks to a very deep level of incompetence and like willful ignorance about what the alt-right is capable of within the police because this information was out there and they chose to ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth talking about like why january 6th like what was happening on january 6th that precipitated this and the answer is Mm -hmm. the certification of the election which like if you're like me who's somebody that like ostensibly studies american history in theory (laughs) you might be like what the fuck even is that so like i don't even know what the certification of the election is but because i have responsibilities to this podcast i did in fact look it up (laughs) yeah um so you know, you may have seen images of, of like heroic staffers saving these like big, stupid old boxes. Those were the state election results. And what happens on this day, this year it was January 6th, is that the state elections um, boards certify election, certify their elections and then send in their results in this very antiquated old fashioned um, way the vice president is there. He's basically like the sports commentator. He just, his job is just to announce the whole thing. Like constitutionally speaking, there really wasn't much for Mike Pence to do, um, which makes it additionally funny that everybody was like so mad at him for not doing anything. Um, But the whole thing, I mean, there's like, there's space for objections to be registered, but it is almost entirely a formality. Um, but this was like Julia was saying this like last gasp of, um, like maybe we can find a way to keep Trump in, in power. 
Um, but as for what actually happened that day, Trump gave a speech. He it was he held a rally. And, you know, during the speech, he was like, we'll never give up, go do something about it. And then literally like sent the mob to the Capitol <laughs> and then predictably people went to the Capitol. And I think Laura is going to get into like the play by play of what happened there. Yeah, um, absolutely. So full disclosure, I like started looking at a lot of different sites. And honestly, the thing that I found to be the most uh, cohesive was just the Wikipedia page that now exists about this um, because it pulls from wow. a lot of different things. So uh, a lot of this play-by-play I pulled from there. Um, and I did check the sources as I was going because I still have that like mentality. But I anyway, just wanted to say it all. So around one o'clock uh, p.m. Eastern Standard Time, hundreds of Trump supporters clashed with officers and pushed through barriers along the perimeter of the Capitol. The crowd swept past barriers and officers, with some members of the mob spraying officers with chemical agents or hitting them with lead pipes. Although many rioters simply walked to the walls of Capitol, some resorted to ropes and makeshift ladders. At 1.58 p.m., Capitol Police removed a barricade from the northeast side of the Capitol because of question mark reasons? Pretty much why we all know that the police are just in cahoots with the fash. Just after 2 p.m., windows were broken through and the mob breached the building and entered the National National Statuary Hall. As rioters began to storm the Capitol and other nearby buildings, some buildings in the complex were evacuated. Outside the building, the mob constructed a gallows and tied a noose to it, punctured the tires of a police vehicle, and left a note saying, Pelosi is Satan on the windshield, which, like... LOL, she wishes. Um, <laughs> Politico reported that some rioters briefly showing their police badges or military identification to law enforcement as they approached the Capitol, expecting therefore to be let inside. Uh, a Capitol police officer told BuzzFeed News that one rioter told him, we're doing this for you, as he flashed a badge. <sighs> Several rioters carried plastic handcuffs with the intention of using them to take hostages. Some of the rioters carried Confederate battle flags or Nazi emblems. Some rioters wore riot gear, including helmets and military-style vests. Insurrectionists displayed the Confederate battle flag and Nazi flag inside the Capitol. So, moments later, Pence was escorted out by members of the Secret Service. The rioters began to climb down the steps steps towards the senate chamber a lone police officer worked to slow the mob down as he radioed that they had reached the second floor worked quote unquote yeah exactly (laughs) is this the police officer that's been like all over twitter Mm -hmm. as like an american hero yeah 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 exactly just steps from the still unsealed senate chamber doors the right so again like as a timeline that's that's um an hour after the protesters started um, c- trying to get into the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can I also just add here briefly, like this is super helpful. And um, I just wanted to add, like, as we're going through what happened, it's also important to keep in mind that like, as Laura said, like, and I think actually everybody's mentioned this, like many of the people that were at this um, riot were armed. Mm-hmm. Um, multiple explosive devices were found. Like these people came very, very close to literally killing members of Congress. Mm-hmm. Like this is, I think I just want to, as we're doing like the play by play, really establish like the gravity of what happened and the fact that this very easily had things gone just a slightly different way mm-hmm. than like a full on massacre. Yeah. Yeah, there were three different um, bombs uh, or whatever they're calling them, whatever devices. IEDs. IEDs. Improvised um, explosive devices. Thank you. Oh, my God. Anyway, so, like, again, still just steps from the unsealed uh, Senate chamber doors. The rioters instead followed the Capitol Police officer who led them away from the chamber doors. Banging could be heard from outside as people attempted to breach the doors. 
As Lankford was speaking, the Senate was gaveled into recess and the doors were locked at 2.15 p.m. A minute later, the rioters reached the gallery outside the chamber and senators inside were told to evacuate and take cover. Trump tweeted that Pence, quote, didn't have the courage to do what should have been done at 2.24 p.m. Um, so that's uh, less than 10 minutes um, after the doors were locked. Afterwards, Trump followers on far-right social media called for Pence to be hunted down, and the mob began chanting, where is Pence and find me Pence. Outside, the mob chanted, hang Mike Pence, which some crowds continued to chant as they stormed the Capitol. At least three rioters were overheard by a reporter saying they wanted to find Pence and execute him as a traitor by hanging him from a tree outside the building. Yeah, I just want to, again, jump in and, like, underline the severity of what's being talked about here. Like, and also the fact that Mike Pence has remained, like, loyal to President Trump during all of this is batshit. Just absolute batshit. Donald Trump is, like, calling for his life on Twitter. Yeah. I can't. Anyway, continue. No, for real. As the mob roamed the Capitol, lawmakers, aides, and staff took shelter in offices and closets. Aides to Mitch McConnell, barricaded in a room just off a hallway, heard a rioter outside the door praying loudly, asking for, quote, the evil of Congress to be brought to an end. Um, the rioters entered and ransacked McConnell's office, which, I mean, like, honestly, you love to see it, but also the whole, other than that, like, not the violence part. Like, fuck his office, you know? Um, okay. Yeah, I, I was just going to say also, like, I feel like it, it, like, I don't know. Yes, that sounds really cool. And, like, you know, I just think it's important to remember, too, that, like, this isn't the same as if, like, a left-wing group had done this. Right, like, of course. The politicians involved, like, can see that it's right-wing people and become afraid of that. And, like, I do think it makes a difference that like that is the group that was doing this just because in terms of like what the actual reaction from people in power will be i feel like it's not gonna take things in like a good direction but that said yeah. storming like congressional offices in other contexts could be great so i just <laughs> want to be clear that we're not against that yeah totally um okay moving on so um like the Senate was meeting or, or there was a there was one meeting happening that involved Mike Pence. There's a different meeting happening in the House chamber. Um, so around 215, while Gosser was speaking, Speaker Pelosi was escorted out of the chamber. The House was gaveled into recess, but would resume a few minutes later. The House re resumed debate again around 2.25. So, so people already knew that there were armed protesters in here and were escorting people to other places and yet, like, resumed their debate that they were having at 2.25. Uh, then around 2.30, when Gosser finished speaking, the House went into recess again. So only five minutes after resuming after their first recess, um, the rioters had entered the, the House wing and were attempting to enter the Speaker's lobby just outside the House chamber. Lawmakers were still attempting to, or sorry, were still inside and being evacuated with Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, and a few other individuals being taken to a, quote, secure location. Members of Congress inside the House chamber were told to put on gas masks as law enforcement had begun using tear gas within the building. Staff members re removed boxes of sealed electoral vote certificates to prevent them from being damaged by rioters. So, again, they, they, they knew what was happening and... and still weren't like taking it seriously up and slash like allowed these rioters to do what they were doing. ABC News reported that shots were fired within the Capitol. An armed standoff took place at the front door of the chamber of the House of Representatives. As the mob attempted to break in, federal law enforcement officers drew their guns inside and pointed them towards the chamber doors, which were barricaded with furniture. 
In a stairway, one officer fired a shot at a man coming towards him. Multiple rioters documented themselves occupying the Capitol and the offices of various representatives storming the offices of Speaker Pelosi. Later in the afternoon, Trump released a video in which he called on the mob to, quote, go home and go home in peace, but did not condemn its behavior, instead saying, quote, we love you, you're very special, um, which for me, this moment echoed his coddling of white supremacist marchers, right, white supremacist marchers in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. Um Moreover, the president once again made false claims that the election had been stolen fraudulently, repeating the same incitement that set off the violence in the first place. Yeah, that is like such a thorough summary. So thanks for putting that together, Laura. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I wanted to talk a little bit about like the class composition of the mob, um, because I have seen people talking about like, you know, I don't know, like making these like sort of snide and classist comments about like, you know, uh, somebody like set loose a bunch of Walmart shoppers or whatever. Um, And I will say that like, I'm assuming that there was no like representative survey taken as riders are like gleefully breaking windows and stealing podiums and like hunting Nancy Pelosi for sport. So we're never going to know exactly who made up the mob. But I think we do know who some of these people were and we know a lot of them were like petite bourgeois people. Um, You know, I think we've all probably seen photos of the group that flew to DC on a private jet, which had been circulating on the internet. We know that there were retired business owners in the crowd, like CEOs of small companies, like marketing dudes, state legislatures. Um, But there were also people who we might consider like more proletariat, like off-duty police officers, apparently lots of them, um, tattoo artists, barbers. There was a really excellent article in the New Republic by Katie McDonough, McDonough, I don't know how to say her last name, apologies to Katie, Um, but it was called Die Laughing at the Capitol, and it was about how we should think about class in relation to what happened here. So she wrote... This isn't a special insight or anything, but it is the primary lens through which I have understood the Capitol riot and the last four years. The long-brewing anti-democratic fever dream of the Koch brothers and the DeVos family getting a boost from Tom, who sells stereo systems in Wontog. The petite bourgeois from these enclaves answered the president's call last week. So did the more adept brawlers who were in direct confrontation with cops, including some who were cops themselves. It's confusing. But then so is almost everything about being alive. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, This article, which, like, again, I really recommend, argues that the presence of some working class people in this revolt doesn't make it a working class movement. The media obviously likes to portray Trump supporters as like these uneducated dolts or like poor farmers or like whatever. But it's also business guys who live in the Chicago suburbs. And also, by the way, it's the business guys who live in the Chicago suburbs who can afford to take off the like time in the middle of the week to fly to D.C. and LARP as revolutionaries. During yeah. a pandemic. During right. a pandemic. Exactly. And I think, well, this has already been covered by a lot of different media outlets, but I think it's also worth highlighting how uh, the alumni of elite institutions have also enabled this coup. So we've seen the ways that like Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who are graduates of Harvard and Yale Law Schools, respectively, have like promulgated misinformation about like the supposed illegitimacy of the election. It's like, okay, like they either have completely forgotten what they learned in law school or they're relying on a subset of their audience or their supporters just listening to what they say without questioning anything. And then they're just like spreading misinformation in bad faith. And unfortunately, because of the way that society is structured, like just by holding a degree from those two schools confers a lot of power all on its own, which I'm sure those two senators have leveraged in their political careers. Um, And I think like people who have similar backgrounds to them, like participated in the coup, financed the coup and like threw their support behind it. And so, yeah, I, I just wanted to like highlight what Helen said about like just because there were working class people in the coup doesn't make it a working class movement. Also, in terms of financing it, just as a side note, Clarence Thomas's wife is a major donor to one of the groups that helped, like, bring people to oh, Washington, D.C. Just um, throwing that out the there. the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I think it's also really worth highlighting the role of the media and media narratives in all of this. Um, there was this actually pretty good article in the New York Times by Ben Smith, who used to be the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. Now he works for the New York Times. Um, I was surprised that this was like a good article, but anyway... Um, so basically it was about how one of his former employees at BuzzFeed was like one of the main people involved in the coup attempt. Um, it's this guy named Anthony Joseph Gionet. No idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who cares? Um, exactly. Smith writes, quote, I called up some of my old colleagues at BuzzFeed who recalled him with a mixture of perplexity and repulsion. One of those friends remembered him as a sad character who didn't really express political views beyond the broadly bro-y and insensitive culture of Vine. As the 2016 election took hold, he started to flirt with a political persona. He first put a Bernie Sanders portrait on his desk, two former colleagues said. Then he moved on to wearing a MAGA hat around the office, which raised eyebrows among his more progressive, if fairly apolitical, co-workers, though that was when some people still imagined the far right could be ironic, unquote. Um, so I don't know. I just thought that this was a very interesting and representative description of like what sort of a more middle class type person who's already involved in the media, um, how, like how someone gets to this. I think it's a mistake to say that like he probably didn't have any politics before. Um, that seems iffy to me, but I do think it's interesting to look at this as an example of how an essentially just like capitalist media that's prioritizing page views and sponsorship deals can really allow and even push someone from like latently fascist, but not really doing anything about it to actively pushing forward a fascist coup attempt and live streaming it. Um, we've seen this sort of alt-right infiltration of major media outlets a lot over the past few years. Um, people may remember there were some documents leaked a few years ago in 2017 that showed that Milo Yiannopoulos was in contact with a bunch of supposedly progressive journalists, um, including at Vice. Um, but this is unfortunately not just a matter of individual right-wing people who like sort of worm their way into these outlets. I think what this article by Ben Smith, maybe unintentionally on his part, highlights is that the culture at BuzzFeed of like seeing themselves as apolitical and we're just like a fun website that's just trying to like get viral videos, um, like seeing that as a like a possible way for things to be as opposed to realizing that this supposedly apolitical viewpoint where like right-wing racist rhetoric can be seen as ironic allowed this to happen and like allowed this guy to get away with like the you know, like fame or whatever comes with like working for a big outlet like this. Um, and another thing that I just wanted to mention, um, because I've done some research on this previously, is that a lot of right wing outlets explicitly use like the models of things going viral that have been developed by outlets like BuzzFeed and sort of like piggyback off of that, steal their methods to spread their own ideas. Um, there was this copy of the Daily Stormers style guide that leaked a few years ago. Um, for anyone who blessedly does not know about this site, it's just like one of the worst really popular far right websites out there. Um, basically, this guide cited Gawker and BuzzFeed as models that they wanted their writers to imitate to appeal to a younger demographic. Um, they talked about, quote, using the existing culture to transmit our own ideas and agenda um, unquote. And they also discussed this more insidious strategy of quoting and citing from mainstream news sources that said positive or neutral things about the alt-right to, quote, co-opt the perceived authority of the mainstream media, unquote. Um, I also just think that we've seen this with, in the same vein, like major, major outlets like the New York Times and Mother Jones giving really like glowing, nice profiles to people like Richard Spencer and essentially like normalizing these views. Um, it kind of like exists through all these different layers of the media. Um, I just, you know, I don't think it would be fair to like fully blame, you know, say BuzzFeed for this, but I do think that this should really show us if we haven't figured out by now that we need to stop granting a media platform to people like this. Yeah. I hope that a literal coup attempt 
can make it so that we all agree that like letting these people have these fancy profiles or speak on college campuses or whatever is bad and is going to give them concretely more power. Yeah. And like a literal militia behind them. <laughs> right. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Well, I know this might seem like a major shift in convo, but I wanted to talk about the role of the U.S. government in overthrowing governments internationally. Uh, why? Be maybe because it's important to me that we don't make some lib argument like coups are bad. I mean, if I think I could overthrow the U.S. government and become the supreme leader of this state and give everyone everything, <laughs> I would do it. We, we support you. Thank you so much, <laughs> benevolent dictator Laura. Um but I also want to stop the narrative of, like, this isn't America. First of all, it is a white nationalist attack, which is American as it gets. And secondly, America is all about coups. Um, so that's what I want to talk about as well. As our beloved Walita would be quick to note, American foreign policy has been fueled by the necessity to serve the following so-called imperatives. Making the world safe for American corporations – Enhancing the financial statements of defense contractors at home who have contributed generously to members of Congress. Preventing the rise of any society that might serve as a successful example of an alternative to the capitalist model. Extending political and economic hegemony over as wide an area as possible as befits a great power. Um, as William Blum, one of my fave authors on this point, uh, in his book, Killing Hope, U.S. Military and CIA Interventions Since World War II, says, this in the name of fighting is a supposal, uh, blah, blah, blah. this in the name of fighting a supposed moral crusade against what cold warriors convinced themselves and the American people was the existence of an evil international communist conspiracy, which in fact never existed, evil or not. The United States carried out extremely serious interventions into more than 70 nations in this period. Um, so meaning from 1945 to 1999 when the book was written. He also writes in a way that truly just makes me love him even more in uh, talking about the complexities of these issues and how they unfolded across the globe since the Cold War. The UN's Code of Conduct on Transnational Corporations, 15 years in the making, is dead. Everything in sight is being deregulated and privatized. Capital prowls the globe with a ravenous freedom it hasn't enjoyed since before World War I, operating free of friction, free of gravity. The world has been made safe for the transnational corporation. Will this mean any better life for the multitudes than the Cold War brought? Any regard for the common folk than there's been since they fell off the cosmic agenda centuries ago? By all means, says Capital, offering another warmed-up version of the trickle-down theory, the principle that the poor who must subsist on table scraps dropped by the rich can be served by giving the rich bigger meals. The boys of capital, they also chortle in their martinis about the death of socialism. The word has been banned from polite conversation, and they hope that no one will notice that every socialist experiment of any significance in the 20th century, without exception, has either been crushed, overthrown, or invaded, or corrupted, perverted, subverted, or destabilized, or otherwise had life made impossible for it by the United States. Not one socialist government or movement, from the Russian Revolution to the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, from communist China to the FMLN in, in Salvador, not one was permitted to rise or fall solely based on its merits. Not one was left secure enough to drop its guard against the all-powerful enemy abroad and freely relax control at home. It's as if the Wrights brothers' first experiments with flying machines all failed because the automobile interest sabotaged each test flight. And then the good and God-fearing folk of the world looked upon this, took notice of the consequences, nodded their collective heads widely, and intoned solemnly, man shall never fly. 
And I just fucking love how he describes that. And I'm just going to talk about a few of the 70 coups, but I think it's important to note that all of these had deeply devastating events. Um, And so I summarized some of the info from that aforementioned book by William Blum. So Guatemala from 1953 to the 1990s, a CIA organized coup overthrew the democratically elective Democratic, the democratically elected and progressive government of Jacobo Arbenz, initiating 40 years of death squads, torture, disappearances, mass executions, and unimaginable cruelty, totaling well over 100,000 victims, indisputably one of the most inhuman chapters of the 20th century. Arbenz had nationalized the U.S. firm United fruit company, which had extremely close ties to the American power elite. As justification for the coup, Washington declared that Guatemala had been on the verge of a Soviet takeover, when in fact the Russians had so little interest in the country that it didn't even maintain diplomatic relations. The real problem in the eyes of Washington, according to United Fruit, was that the danger of Guatemala's social democracy spreading to other countries in Latin America. Then we have the Dominican Republic from 1963 to 1966. In February of 1963, Juan Bosch took office as the first democratically elected president of the Dominican Republic since 1924. Here at last was John F. Kennedy's liberal anti-communist to counter the charge that the U.S. supported only military dictatorships. Bosch's government was to be the long-sought, quote, showcase of democracy that would put the lie to Fidel Castro. He was given the grand treatment in Washington shortly before he took office. Bosch was true to his beliefs. He called for land reform, low-rent housing, modest nationalization of business, and foreign investment provided it was not excessively exploitative of the country and other policies for making up the program of any liberal third world leader serious about social change. He was likewise serious about civil liberties. Communists, or those labeled as such, were not to be persecuted unless they actually violated the law. A number of American officials and congresspeople expressed their discomfort with Bosch's plans, as well as his stance on independence from the United States. Land reform and nationalization were always touchy issues in Washington, the stuff that, quote, creeping socialism is made of. <clears throat> in several quarters of the U.S. press, Bosch was red-baited. In September, the military boots marched. Bosch was out. The United States, which could discourage a military coup in Latin America with a frown, did nothing. Nineteen months later, a revolt broke out, which promised to put the exiled Bosch back into power. In response, uh, the United States sent 23,000 troops to help crush it. Moving right along, <laughs> Chile from 1963 to who honored the Constitution and became increasingly popular. This shook the very foundation of um, the foundation stones on which the anti-communist tower was built. The doctrine, painstakingly cultivated for decades, that, quote, communists can only take power through force and deception, that they can retain power only through terrorizing and brainwashing the population. After sabotaging Allende's electoral endeavor in 1964 and failing to do so in 1970, despite their best efforts, the CIA and the rest of the American foreign policy machine left no stone unturned in their attempt to destabilize the Allende government over the next three years, paying particular attention to building up military hostility. Finally, in September of 1973, the military overthrew the government, Allende dying in the process. They closed the country to outside world for a week while the tanks rolled and the soldiers broke down doors. The stadiums rang with the sounds of execution and the bodies piled up in the streets and floated in the river. The torture centers opened for business. The subversive books were thrown into bonfires. Soldiers slit the trouser legs of women, shouting that in Chile, women wear dresses. 
the poor returned to their natural state, and the men of the, in, of the world in Washington and the halls of international finance opened their checkbooks. In the end, more than 3,000 people had been executed, and thousands more were tortured or disappeared. Okay, so those are just a few examples of the U.S.-led coups. But just to clarify the absolute scope of this, and to be clear, these were all post-World War II. The U.S. has a history that spans well before that time of doing this shit. But I just wanted to just kind of like rattle off these because it's, I think it's important for people to understand the scope of U.S. imperialism in the form of coups. Um, so 1945, South Korea, 1945, China, 1947, Greece. 1948, Costa Rica, 1949, Albania, 1949, Syria, 1950, Burma and China, 1950, Korea, 1952, Egypt, 1952, Iran, 1953, Cuba. I just also wanted to throw out a fun fact that the U.S. unsuccessfully tried to kill Castro at least six times. Yes. Those are probably just the times we know about, but yeah. exactly. Precisely. Uh, 1953, the Philippines. Uh, 1954, Guatemala. 1954, Paraguay. 1956, Syria, again. 1957, Indonesia. 1958, Lebanon. 1959, South Vietnam. 1959, Iraq. 1959 to 2000, Cuba. 1960, Congo, Leopoldville. Uh, 1960, Laos. 1961, Dominican Republic, again. 1961, Laos, again. 1961, Brazil. 1963, Iraq. 1964, Chile, again. (laughs) 1964, Vietnam. 1965, Dominican Republic. Again. 1965, Indonesia. Again. 1967, Cambodia. 97, Chile. Again. 1971, Bolivia. 1973, Uruguay. 1974, Ethiopia. 1975, Angola. 1978, Zaire. 1970, oh sorry, 1977, Zaire. 1978, Zaire. Again, 1979, Cambodia. Again, 1979 to 1989, Afghanistan. 1980, uh, Poland. Uh, 1981, Palestinian territories, 2006 to present, Syria, 2007, Iran, 2009, Honduras, 2011, Libya, 2015 to present, Yemen, and 2019 to present, Venezuela, which is worth fucking pointing out again because when we did our stimulus one, we talked about the money that's going to Venezuela for these quote-unquote democracy projects. So, like, do not be fooled by this. Um... This concludes Laura's segment on the CIA and the United States as a whole just shouldn't exist. And we sure as shit can't sit on our high horses about coups when our government has continuously and systemically carried out coups in the name of their dogmatic worship in defense of capital. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that was, I mean, I like intellectually knew about this, but there is something really impressive about just hearing the list Mm -hmm. and literally just like how long it takes to read is like, oh my God, like, yeah, yeah, the US sucks. I know that that was a little bit of an extra thing to do, but I just like felt like I needed to. No, I feel like it it shows how (laughs) how bad this is. Like really, we really cannot say this isn't America. Like, look at that list. For real. Um, so <laughs> what's happening next, right? Um, you know, when there's one attempted coup, there's surely more to follow. As I said at the top of the episode, there's currently a second armed attempt planned for January 17th as state capitals around the country. Um, and if you happen to live in a capital city, you know, please stay safe. These people are literal fascists. So stay inside and, and stay off the streets if you can. 
Yeah, and there have also been more police officers deployed in D.C. and other cities across the country as well. And as we've discussed on this episode already, and as I'm sure most listeners already know, uh, cops almost always protect property and they protect white people who they believe to be, quote unquote, on their side. Um, and so like, I'm worried that there's going to be even more of an increase in police violence as a result of this, especially against Black people. Yeah, we've already seen mainstream commentators call for like more police training as a way <laughs> to combat this, like, which just means more money going to the police. Right. Um, the world's most incredible dipshit, Matt Iglesias, Ugh. has made... Trash. Oh my god, yeah. <sighs> He's made some comments on Twitter that are like, uh, are you sure you wanted to fund the police now? <laughs> yes, like, bitch. Which is also funny because like this is what it looks like when the police responded to the problem, you know? Like right, what sort yeah. of argument is that? Well, yeah. he's trying. He's like trying to be like they didn't do their jobs because they weren't equipped, as opposed to the idea that like enabling white supremacy actually is oh doing god. their job. Or like you know just totally disregarding the fact that the police sympathize with fascist elements and or like are active participants so yeah like we still wanted to fund the police um just just in case you were curious right um it's it's i am speechless sometimes reading his twitter i don't know why he's literally the worst yeah he also makes a shit ton of money to make the most fucked up takes yeah um Give your money yeah. to us instead of Maddie Glaze. Another enemy of the pod. If any of our um, listeners were giving yeah, I was like, their what money to I hope there's no overlap. Yes. <laughs> Switch yeah. that auto payment to us right now. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. I also wanted to, like, approach this question of what happens next from sort of like a, a the perspective of theory. Um, Vanessa Wills, who's a pr- philosophy professor at GW, had this great Twitter thread about this that I wanted to read from. Um, the thread was like pretty wide ranging, made a lot of good points. I definitely like check it out, but I'll just be judicious and read just a tiny bit of it. So she said, these people, meaning the rioters, made calculated, self-serving and terrifyingly clear eyed decisions to destroy liberal bourgeois democracy on the basis that they deem it incapable of serving its function of subduing the masses and putting capital before human life. For them, the lockdowns, the rise of the BLM protests, and the electoral repudiation of Trump, which occurred in large part due to Black voters, all demonstrate clearly that America isn't working like it's supposed to. She goes on to say, working people can't expect the big bourgeoisie, read Democrats, to defend us. They are also feel feel. They are also fearful of us and loathe to see us empowered, yet they cannot protect their own institutions from fascists without enlisting the masses in ways that would undermine bourgeois leadership over society. The danger is that as the situation is pushed further and further to a point of crisis, the choice comes between fascism and profits or socialism and human freedom. And from the point of view of capitalism, fascism will always emerge as a lesser evil. Such is a point of crisis. Sorry. Such a point of crisis is increasingly unavoidable in the United States. Damn. Yes. I just thought this was so well said. Um, And it it really made me think like, um, you know, essentially the the job of bourgeois democracy is to keep the masses in check. It's to offer just enough in the way of concessions to the proletariat to keep them in line. But during this time, when the contradictions of capitalism are heightening, as Professor Will said, it's not just it's not just us. Like it's not just socialists who are like this isn't working, you know. Yeah. And the leadership in our bourgeois democracy is ill-equipped to deal with the threat from fascism, which is coming from the other people who are like this isn't working for for other reasons, you know. And it's just like, oh my God, the person that's being enlisted to to try to solve this problem is Joe <laughs> Biden, <laughs> Joseph Robinette Biden. <laughs> no i mean there's nothing like just just to build off of that very quickly the the fact that immediately after democrats won the senate they were like we're gonna be the the one that reaches across the aisle in the most bipartisan Congress you've ever seen. I'm like, fuck you. You're just literally doing exactly what, um, you know, Kellen is discussing. Well, it's like, I mean, even after, after this coup attempt, Joe Biden's inauguration party theme is uniting America. Right. And it's just like, who are we uniting with? Really? Like, that's your plan. You think this is going to work? Like Joseph, 
Joseph R. Biden, Matt Iglesias. Enemies. Enemies of the pod, complete idiots. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up because I also feel like I've seen a lot of people arguing over like whether or not the cops who are on the ground at the Capitol like literally enabled this to happen, like let the protesters in or like contributed to what was going on. And like, you know, I've seen some evidence that seems like maybe some of them did. I've also seen some things that seem like a lot of them didn't and were sort of like trying to do their jobs. But it's like, the thing is, we don't really need to prove that like those few police officers added to this when one, we know there were so many off-duty police officers and military people in, like who were amongst the rioters. And then the other thing is like you're pointing out, Kellen, like it's our whole political system that's really enabling and like, pushing us towards this crisis it's not just about like did those police officers do their job or not and like even if they did that still would be bad like it's really about the whole system that's letting this happen yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. um so you know if if you are on team get the money away from maddie glacius to season of the bitch you can do so by giving that money to patreon.com slash season of the bitch um we have a reading group on there that meets regularly uh we have a discord that is so great um we have movie nights from time to time and we have extra content you can also follow us on instagram and twitter at season of the b you can send us an email at (laughs) season of the b at gmail.com if you fucking dare uh and you can uh go to our website at season of the b.com rate review subscribe on itunes and subscribe on spotify bash the fash okay okay love you love you love you bye love you bye. Bye. bye Bitch.